Hello, Eric Vatek. Welcome back to the Ponytail Show. You obviously didn't get enough the first round, um, but it's it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I believe the theme for today is learning from failure. It's, that's a theme that you chose. D- did you have a sort of self-reflective week? Yeah, well, so what happened is after our first conversation, I kind of felt like I'd really failed um, <laughs> <laughs> because you, you know, you, you, and as I was trying to answer your question about this, you know, incredible photo shoot in Vietnam, I just, this, this incredible black void was like in my head. I could like, I could barely even remember being there. So I was sort of like, you know, stammering, trying to think like, like, what did I do? And like in three weeks of this kind of epic photo shoot, how, you know, I, I literally could think of nothing. Yeah. I ended up talking about the hotel, which was like the least, probably the last thing on my list I wanted to talk about was the stupid hotel we stayed in. Um, and it, so it was really, it was really kind of stressful. Cause I, you know, I, you know, you're kind of on the spot, you know, yeah. Well, I don't want to stress um, you out, man. <laughs> well, I'm just, you know, this is still kind of new to me, this yeah. live uh, live thing. Live, but, but not um, live. Yeah, because it was all this amazing stuff. Like, I, like I, what I should have talked about is, is, is for the first time in my professional career, I shot surfing. Yeah. You know, actually being in the, in the water with the surfers. Yeah, tell um, us about that. Was, well, you know, it was, so I... I was think at first I was thinking, oh, I'm going to shoot on the beach from the beach with a telephoto lens, and they'll just be surfing out there. And you know, I'm not saying that I was being lazy, but you know, that was my initial, you know, plan. Sort of least time-consuming way to shoot the surfers, and then so then I that wasn't working. So then I was like, I had a GoPro, and I was like, oh shit, I just need to like swim out there, and because then I could just talk to them, like you know, yeah. instead of being a hundred you know, feet away, I was like three feet away, you know, a meter away. So yeah, it was, it was actually ended up being like super cool. Cause I could, you know, I could kind of like change my angle and mm. direct them and, you know, we could take a break and float around for a while and it was a beautiful day. And nice. yeah, and I think the result, you know, they weren't sh- surfing the biggest waves in the world, but you know, at least they were. Yeah. You got a actually, good feeling. Yeah. You know, and, and they were, yeah. And that, that's where, that's where my camera got stolen also. While I was shooting the surfers, my camera got stolen. Wow. Like my, off was, the beach? Yeah, my, well, my, real, my real main camera that's never supposed to break broke the previous day. So I rented, I rented a camera which was broken. <laughs> so the rental, the broken rental camera was in my bag at the surf shack and somebody stole it while Damn. I was, but there was a happy end. The, the, the surf, the guy that I was shooting was like the boss of that beach, the surf boss. Surf boss. And he, yeah, he actually got my camera back for me. Wow. The broke, the, yeah. So he, he, he put some, you know, he put some weight on the, on his pals and was like, Hey, you can't be stealing my 
my pals. You know, these people's stuff. cameras. Yeah. Yeah. This guy's taking so, photos of me in the ocean. You can't exactly. Be... Like that sounds he sounds like the real deal, man. No, he was a he was like a badass. He was like he's like he's I think for him it was probably more boring for him because instead of surfing like really incredible waves, you know, he was surfing these little you know, Small, little smaller waves. Small waves. But you know, it takes it takes real skill to to surf small waves, like more than you'd think. Um, so are you telling me that you shot that that all the surf shots on a GoPro? They looked really good. The ones where they're actually in the water, yeah. Like wow. uh Yeah, I mean it's uh Yeah, it looked it looked okay. Yeah. I thought like yeah. from from looking at those photos, I thought you shot like you got like housing for your like digital SLR yeah. and like yeah. but you shot that on a GoPro, wow. Yeah. I actually yeah, have the housing for like my big camera, but it's so heavy to travel with. Like mm. it's so huge and massive to travel with. I almost never travel with it. Mm. But have you shot like yeah. what have you shot with the with the housing? Um, just practice, you know, like practice, mm. like like diving, because I I'm certified for scuba diving, so I wow, I've always wanted would, to do that. I thought that I would use it for like underwater, you know, stuff, but it's just it's so it's it's incredibly comp the, the real rig. It's so complicated. It's 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 pretty it's pretty time consuming on the mm. cap like on any photo shoot. You're, like you're hustling so you know going so fast it's just the, the time doesn't really allow for like fiddling around with all that yeah. stuff yeah but i feel like you have to like on for those who who like don't know um what it would be like to be on a capital shoot or any shoot that you do um like yeah it's super fast paced um there's a lot of people involved and Eric always has to kind of think on his feet. There's a lot of problem solving involved with that, which is kind of like linked to this topic of learning from failure because you really have to like act on your feet all the time and, and just kind of yeah. go with the flow and, and like you can't really have this like obsessive um, like premeditated vision of, of the production because like any small thing can happen and then like, you'll have to like change on your feet and yeah. Um, yes, you know, a lot of photo shoots, they shoot, it's called tethered. So they have like a laptop connected to the camera and then the photographer's like, you know, taking one shot and then like 20 people are like staring at that laptop yeah. trying to figure out, oh, is this the perfect shot? I don't shoot that way. So yeah, you're like, you know, you, your approach is like really like a documentary photojournalist and like yeah you just that's what's so impressive about seeing you work is like you just you just get things right like you just capture so much that you've you're sure that you've got the shot and like yeah when you go through the shots at the end like when I look through the photos you shoot for my stuff like there's always an option, like the the right option for every like moving shot and like this. Yeah, there's almost too much option 
at the yeah. end of a photo shoot, which is like I've a- actually been trying to shoot less on the photo shoots because looking through like thirteen thousand photos is a little bit, you know, insane. Yeah. So yeah, I've actually tried to like cut back. <laughs> yeah, but then you could like miss something, you know. Yeah, I just I like shooting. So like, if if everything's great, like the lights great and the people look cool and the clothes are you know awesome, it's just I kind of don't want to. Yeah. Stop, you know. Totally. So it's it's kind of yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, so that was successful. That was not failing. <laughs> Good. Tell me more about the Vietnam shoot. So. There was this other thing that I thought that actually was really kind of brilliant. Um, you know, some of my favorite photographers were, were from the Vietnam, like doc, you know, like war photographers from the Vietnam War. And there's one in particular, Larry Burroughs. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the really iconic photos from the war are, are from him. And he actually died eventually during the war. But there's these, there's all these photos of his where I've never really been able to figure out like how, like what the conditions were. They're like, they've got this like kind of blue, hazy, foggy, almost quality. Mm. And, and in literally 30 years of taking photos, I've never quite gotten that same lighting situation, like like that quality. And so we were shooting, we were shooting in Vietnam and I think it was after we shot the surfing. Eventually we, we had like, you know, like an hour before sunset. And there was this location that I really wanted to shoot at, but it would take us almost an hour to drive there. And so I was, I was almost like, ah, fuck it, we're not, we're not gonna go there. But then we, I really wanted it. So we, we, we drove as fast as we could. We got, it was like this, this hill, this, this pass through these hills. And it's the photos where like the, the models have this like super kind of denim hippie. Um, mm, yeah ensemble like so we're shooting and all of a sudden it was that light like it was and it was it was it was just the combination of being a little bit in the hills the the like dusk a little bit because people burn their trash also Mm. and they there's a lot of pollution from like the the trucks but it was whatever it it all came together and it was exactly that light from his photos and it was like it, and like when you know when you when I ever I think about shooting in Vietnam, it's that. I was hoping to find, and yeah. I even during the scouting, like I never saw that. It just wow. sort of happened at that moment. So that was kind of that's um, a special moment for me. It was yeah, kind of kind of incredible. Yeah. Um, but uh, I feel like every yeah, country it, has like a a very distinct quality of light and photo like um japan has a real like hazy light like a real like diffuse light um like australia is like this harsh stark super contrasty like opposite of diffuse lights like well because there's no ozone layer uh, above australia so there's no like uv filter so there's there's got to be something to do with that like what's your favorite do you have like a favorite country where you just really love the the light the yeah the um so in the summer in like the arctic circle 
mm-hmm. like in Sweden, in Sweden or Iceland, when there's literally 24 hours of daylight like mm-hmm. that, like when the sun has like like at around midnight, like 11 p.m., when the sun is like kind of down by the horizon. So there's like an hour or two where there, where it's still light, but there, the sun is just barely. Yeah. So that so the so the rays from the sun are almost horizontal to the ground. Whoa! If you can imagine that, like yeah. so it's so yeah, either so that, like either either almost like beautifully flat light on your on your face or like backlit. Yeah. Wow! Like almost like, studio. Like, like in a normal not the arctic circle like when the sun goes down it's going it's almost going like straight down so you only have a couple you know you have a very short amount of time where the sun is at that the you know golden hour mm, um yeah. but in the arctic circle because the sun is going like you know scooping down and then going back up you have a couple hours actually where you know where you can shoot like with this kind of beautiful I don't you know hazy wow. golden hour, yeah. Golden bendy light that yeah. shoots down and up. <laughs> Amazing. Sounds like you stepped into a wormhole, into some kind yeah. of like weird parallel universe. It's kind of like that because you get also in the Arctic Circle. You get a little weird because you you you, you look at the sun and think, oh, it's six p.m. You know. And it's like it's eleven. Yeah, you know? right. That must be so a headspin. I've I've never experienced that in my life, except for I guess like in, in Europe, like in the summertime, it gets dark real late. And yeah, that, France has a pretty late sunset in, yeah, the, in the summer, like 10, 10 p.m. ish. Yeah, um, that's quite a headspin for me. Like, um, but I feel like. Um, slightly off the subject but like you experience time with like the change in in light and seasons and stuff like um for example like living in a tropical country you don't really remember specific points in the year because there's no like winter spring autumn to like pinpoint those kind of like moments in the year that kind of reminded me of this like weird parallel universe of the arctic circle that you kind of where sun bends and time seems like constant wait time is constant sorry everyone but (laughs) time seems still but um yeah wow so so did you manage to get any of those um special shots on film because I remember you brought your Nikon to Vietnam. In in, in Vietnam, um, I wish I could say yes, but uh, <laughs> but, but no. <laughs> but that's for next time. Yeah. You did shoot film like the film that you shot in the Golden Triangle just before that Vietnam shoot came out real nice. Yeah, no, that that yeah was really really nice. Yeah, yeah. We, I bought, I got you that um, Fuji Superior, which has that like yeah. green tinge, which came out super nice. Um, yeah, I hope I I hope we can make a special, I don't know something special with those those film shots. 
We'll see how how the world. I'm sure you'll make that. something very special. Special, <laughs> special. Yeah, I'd love to make. I'd love to, yeah, make a book or something. That would be fun. Um, so, what else about Vietnam did you did you miss? Is that is your watch that you wear from Vietnam? This this is the watch that um, this is the the watch that uh, Martin Sheen wears in Apocalypse Now, the Vietnam movie. But the it actually this watch wasn't made until after the Vietnam War, so it's sort of a mistake in the movie. It's a failure. It's a total. It's a historical failure. fail. Learning from failure. But. Yeah, but it's it's like it's the Seiko diving watch that uh, Martin Sheen wishes he'd worn in the Vietnam War. Um, I think this watch is actually from Australia. I got it from Australia, actually, from a like a profession, like a um, like a professional, like a like a like a diver, not not like a recreational diver, but like a like a somebody that had to work under the water, like an undersea welder or something like that. Yeah, wow. That sounds, so it's like super destroyed. That sounds very Australian and wild. Yeah, you know, Australians are pretty tough. Yeah, they are pretty tough people. Speaking of vintage, can, am, am I allowed to go back to pre-photographer Eric Kvartek to yeah. vintage... What would what dealer. would I call that dealer? Vintage dealer, <laughs> vintage dealer. Eric Kovatek. Yeah, yeah. What, back what? to the nineties. Yeah, back to the nineties. <laughs> Let's go there. Yeah, the nineties are hot right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's because like I was, I was, I was still hot in the nineties. <laughs> Is that learning from failure? Yeah, I, like I got I I I survived the 90s I failed by living I failed by getting old so how did you fail as a 90s vintage dealer um I think you did pretty well before you failed yeah the actually I didn't I didn't exactly I personally didn't fail the whole the world economy failed yeah um so I was I was selling to Japan mostly, and in 1997, there was like a huge Asian stock market crash. Mm. And um, I remember I was like, I was driving in a rental car, I think it was in California, and I was just listening to the news, you know, and I remember like the newscaster said, oh, today in Asia, the, you know, stock market crashed. And I just, I knew in that, in that, moment i knew that my business was probably finished <laughs> like i just it was a huge crash and i just kind of i just sort of knew like oh i'm done mm-hmm. and, and, and i was done like yeah. the um the, the, the my main client owed me sixty thousand dollars oh jeez at the time and um i was just like fuck like mm. you know is he gonna pay me? And um, at first, he wasn't paying me. Like I, I was owed, I was owed that money for several years. And right. uh, 
he eventually, I mean, to his credit, you know, thank God the Japanese have this kind of incredible sense of honor. Yeah. Um, he, he, really he little did. by little, he paid me, wow. you know, he, he, um, it wasn't like one lump sum. It was, it was literally spread out over several years and, mm. and you know, we settled up. Um, so that's how that's, that's how that ended. I feel like that's very relevant to our learning from failure theme during the the worst economic crisis since the yeah. depression. Um, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, heavy feelings. Actually, today, I didn't tell you, but today um found out that my factory in Vietnam have to shut their doors because of the you know, the problems with supply chains right now, you know, people are not paying and yeah, there's a lot of, I feel like there's going to be a lot of this um, happening. I think we're going to all kind of shrink down um, and make more kind of more handmade like cottage industry kind of pieces. But yeah, I feel like they're, they're temporarily shutting down or permanently shutting no, down. Like, yeah finished finished done Uh, sorry to hear that yeah it's kind of a bummer it kind of like not kind of a bummer it's a big bummer because i'm just thinking about all the people who i mean they do get paid um for three months of salary but you know what are they going to do what are all these people that i've been working with for years you know like how are they going to work and i think this is a question that like people all over the world are asking themselves right now and like I feel I find myself not in such a like drastic way but like reevaluating, learning from failure may this failure may not necessarily be like my failure but just the failure of um so many systems but um yeah like yeah. that's why I really want to hear about how you did transition from being a vintage dealer like how did you get the idea of of starting out being a photographer and how did you go about it yeah so uh, kind of amazingly like it was definitely not planned i mean so i i was already taking photos and i you know i had in the back of my mind since like high school that i you know wanted to be a photographer so i i didn't know how to do that but and I didn't take photography in college. I, I I was drawing, so I really had no training, you know, to be a photographer other than me wanting to take photos of, you know, my friends and, you know, my travels. So, so when 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 the when my vintage thing ended, I was I really had no plan. I mean, luckily I had some savings, you know, so I I had time. I had a you know I had a little bit of time, but. Um, you know, so because that failed, that that sort of allowed me to move to New York City. Mm. You know, like a year later, which I mean, and it, when I it went, I had just ordered like a brand new truck, like you know the truck that I have. I I just ordered it purely for business, purely for being a vintage dealer. It was like you know, the it was it was so I I here here my business had failed, and I had this like, you know, kind of expensive truck that I still had to pay for. And and you know had no reason that you know, no reason to own it anymore. Like, 
Dang. you know, I still have it. So I mean, at least I, at least I you ended took up real with a truck. But, yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, I kind of take care of it. But um, so, so just just by chance, my friend was like, "Hey, Eric, do you want to, you know, you want to move to New York City?" Um, his he'd broken up with his girlfriend, and uh, you know, he wanted somebody to maybe share his loft. And I was like, I was just like, "Yeah, I, I guess I can move to New York. Like, I have no." I have nothing else to do, you know? So we, yeah, so I, I moved, I moved to New York in 1998 and, um, it, and it kind of worked out cause my friend was like almost never there. So it was almost like having my own place. Um, but so, so one of the, the, like one of the first people I met when I moved to New York was a, was a, a vintage, vintage Hawaiian dealer and collector. And I was selling some like, yeah, I, I was, I was setting up at the flea market and just selling like stuff that I had, you know, just to get rid, you know, basically mm. to get rid of it, uh, and make, you know, make a little extra money. And, um, she bought all my Hawaiian stuff and, you know, we just started talking about, you know, Hawaii. And, and I had a, you know, I had a dream to go to Hawaii, like kind of a, you know, you know, a dream. What do they call that? A, a dream. Fantasy. And, <laughs> yeah, a fantasy. I had a fantasy of going to Hawaii. Because, you know, when you grow up on a farm, mm. you know, in Ohio, going to Hawaii is like the farthest, weirdest, you yeah. know. Dreamland. You know, pe this is a tangent, but I don't think people these days can appreciate what travel mm. used to be like. like. Like going to Hawaii used to be like, if you did it, you did it once in your life. Yeah. You know, and that was it. Like, like once a year to go surfing because it's cool. Like, like you would save your money for mm. ten years to go to Hawaii. Yeah. Like going to for an American going to Australia was like unheard of. You know, That's nobody true. going to Japan. You know, like nobody went to Japan. Nobody. You know, you'd hear about people going to Europe, and that was about it. Like. You know, going to Mexico was a big deal, you know? Yeah. And, and you didn't, and you, and you did it, literally did it once in your life, like that, you know? So, yeah. so, anyway, so I had this fantasy of going to Hawaii and, you know, and, and so, so I met, I met my friend, uh, Janu, and she, she, she told me about these, these, these Japanese guys she knew that were opening a jeans store. And she was like, you know, you should meet them. And you know, you know how you're like your mom and your your aunt tell you stuff like that, like, oh, I know this guy that you know, yeah. he likes, uh, you know, he likes stuff. He, he likes stuff. You guys Maybe. like, you guys should meet, you know. Yeah. And but amazingly, she was like, you should, she, you should talk to these guys, and 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 I think you know she knew that I spoke, I spoke a little bit of Japanese from you know selling vintage mm. to, to Japan and you know I met them and I had just shot these photos these kind of documentary style photos in Indonesia and they saw those photos and were like oh can you shoot our fashion but make it look like this and you know like and I get what they met was unpretentious mm. not professional models Very, you know like real and raw not, raw not posing like mm. you know 
model poses. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, I can do that. But I really didn't know. I didn't know <laughs> that I could, you know. You it's just like, yeah, like... I can do that. Yeah. And, and, and just by fate, my neighbor in the, I lived in Hell's, this loft, it was in the Hell's Kitchen. And my upstairs neighbor was a fashion, like a real fashion photographer. And so I just like knocked on his door and I was like, dude, somebody wants me to shoot some fashion photos. What do I do? And he, 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 you know, my, I, I knew how to make it look like my stop, you know, how my look, but I didn't know, I just didn't know the logistics of like doing a fashion, mm. like doing a job, like, yeah. you know, like having two camera, having a backup camera, ha you know, shooting Polaroids. Cause back, so before digital, you'd shoot a Polaroid to see what it looked like mm. and show the client the Polaroid. So just, just weird, stupid stuff yeah. like that. Like, you know, having a ref having a bounce like a reflector yeah um and, and on the film you'd have to write like on the film on the roll of film you'd write like shot one roll a you know mm. roll b roll c roll so you just just the just he taught me like in a couple hours he just gave me the rundown of those yeah the like logistics the workflow. you know yeah right yeah and i and i had never i had never uh what did i never do um <laughs> what a good guy for showing you all that day yeah no i mean i mean it was just a combination of like amazing like, like friends being friends you know like you know like the my friend greg that asked me to live in uh new york city steven upstairs that showed me how to be a fashion photographer <laughs> uh you know my I feel friend like, that introduced me to yeah but i feel like it takes a, a sense of openness as well like like you know these things happen in in real life all the time but you actually have to be open and receptive to all of these like yeah these these op these opening doors in front of you yeah to like go well, some, and dive some in. people will say like occasionally people will say to you like oh you're so lucky like as if it's just luck that you ended up doing that for 20 years like you no. know it's always there's a little bit of luck like but you know but being yeah being like you said like being open to things happening sometimes yeah. is that's what it takes to you know kind of survive or thrive like mm. like not being closed to like yeah opportunity yeah. you know and just like not um, knowing and just not knowing where also like inspiration could come from anywhere and like just being open to that and just being like in just enjoying the world around you and and just seeing those like those little signs and those little windows opening and those doors opening and those people yeah. and just just going for it yeah so 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 they asked so part of the photo shoot was they wanted me to shoot and they had this beautiful brand new store in new york um in soho and they wanted me to take photos in the store and so I was comfortable shooting on the street with natural light because that's what I do. Like that's that's mm. what they wanted. They, they wanted me to just do this sort of street photography documentary style. But then they wanted these photos in their beautiful store, which was not what I do. And so I bought I bought a basic lighting kit that I still have to this day. And 
I plugged it in. I plugged it into their store, and I immediately like blew out their, you know, blew out their uh, uh, wiring. Oh, and uh, so just in the heat of the moment, I just had to figure out. Well, how do I? Yeah. How do I fix? Like, how do I get how do the I shot? You know. So I ended up. I ended up going and buying like a kind of like a much lower quality lighting kit that took less power, you know, but still had some light, you know, so I just fixed it, you know, yeah. and, uh, yeah. And then, you know, so I shot for, you know, I, I shot for them for three years. So they like, you know, something worked out, you know, it worked out pretty and, well. Uh, yeah. And then that's movies. how I met Kiro. Yeah. So that, that's how I met Kiro. Cause he designed for them. And then, you know, shot for Capital for 15 years so far. So, but yeah. you couldn't plan, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't plan that no. trajectory, you know. Yeah, you he, just have to be open and follow your nose and just ride the, the good wave while it, while it's, while it's still, um, well, there's energy in it and, and like be dynamic and be able to. I think like when when you have this kind of set idea of what your life should be, then things get real difficult when it doesn't go the way you think it is going. But like when yeah. you have when you have just no expectations, everything's like stoked, so happy about yeah. that, <laughs> right? So I was, so I was gonna tell you about some failure, some epic failure. And I think this perfectly, perfectly kind of segues into one of these failures. Tell me. So, cause, because people think like, oh, Eric, oh, he's shot for 45 RPM in Capitol and his life's incredible and he's Fashion blessed, photographer. You know, Fancy fashion, fashion photographer. photographer. Well, so between, but between 45 RPM and Capitol, there was like a couple years where I really, like I didn't, have these kind of clients and mm. um so you know like like when i was shooting for 45 rpm you know i just sort of got used to like you know oh, i'm gonna go eat sushi every day in new york city like because i didn't cook like i didn't i i didn't cook and i also hated washing dishes uh. so when you don't want to cook and you i had dirty dishes in my sink one time for a year like the same dishes they literally uh. What does that even look like? Disgusting. Um, you know, but <laughs> that's, I just didn't want to touch them. I, I didn't even, I didn't, it, and it's not a snobby thing. I just, no. I just, I just hate like. Must be nice. Washing. Yeah, must be nice. <laughs> so, so I ended up eating out every day for, you know. Must be nice. Years. And well, but then when I when I lost that, you know, so when I lost that gig, um, all of a sudden, like these credit card bills started rolling in, you know, from, you know, real 30 days after you'd already spent the money. And um, I wasn't getting photo jobs. And the next thing I knew, I like I owed, you know, a lot. I, uh, I had like multiple, you know, all these credit cards with super high balances. And um, 
I owed so much, and I tried to pay them off. I would sell stuff. I sold like a bunch of my vintage stuff, and I really I tried to do like the honorable thing and like, you know, pay the credit cards back. But the interest rates were also so high because I would miss the payment. So, mm. you know, I don't know if this is a very I don't know if this is a very American thing or if like, people elsewhere in the world can relate to it. Like I, I think the credit I think card, the credit card um, interest rates are a universal thing, but. I did like see on the I saw a documentary or on the news or something um, like penalty the penalty rates like charged on certain they're like oh right it's Trump's son-in-law he's like you know all his um, property all the properties that his company run they like really like charge insane interest rates for all their tenants who don't pay pay yeah rent on time and it just seemed like really horrific thing um and just awful yeah but yeah so i so my interest rates on these cards were like i don't know 30 or 40 percent like penalty interest rate you know so so no matter how much money i paid um yeah it It just keeps going down yeah right so so i um I kind of knew that like you know I was screwed like I you know I had no I had really had no income and I had no um way to pay these credit cards and I had no no future jobs on the horizon so I I had I, I basically ended up I ended up finally finally I just had to suck it up and declare bankruptcy mm. you know because I had no I had no way and I really didn't want to do, I really, just out of pride, I didn't want to even, I didn't want to do that, mm. you know, but I just, I just finally, I had to like, you know, do it, you yeah. know, and, and like, like, but back then, you know, like, I, it's even more pathetic, like, I, I think, like, one time I didn't check my email for a week, you know, in the middle of this, and I opened my email, and there was, there, there was like a job opportunity to shoot a, to shoot something, which I missed because I didn't, you know, look it, at my email. It probably caused you a lot of stress to open your emails at that time, though. Yeah, well, because well, like bill collectors, you know, bill yeah. collectors will call. They would call you back then. I'm like, I had like a home phone, a landline, and you know, like I just dreaded like the I dreaded the phone ringing. Like to this day, the the phone ringing stresses me out. Mm. Like literally, like. If I'm in a hotel room and like the like they, they call my room to tell me something, it really yeah like it just stresses me. It's it's not so much the cell phone ringing because I was used to it being a landline. Yeah, like so, those those like, wake up calls in the hotel that the hotels do, like that that scares the hell out of me. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, so it was it was pretty you know it was pretty depressing you know mm-hmm. like I, I I really felt like I just totally failed you yeah. know and um, so basically I, I I had to go to court and the judge you know they kind of look at your assets and tell you what you have to pay and I really had I had like I really didn't have any assets left like I mm. you know. Um, They can't take my cameras because that's how I work. So that was yeah. like I got to keep, you know, I got to keep my cameras, and 
I got to keep my truck because they basically said, well, that's how you, you know, try it. was, yeah, it was already 10 years old at the time. So it wasn't like worth a lot, but yeah, they leave, they leave you enough to survive. Mm. I had no, you know, and I remember walking home from court, you know, declaring bankruptcy and, you know, I really, I felt, I felt like, you know, I Heavy. failed. Yeah. <laughs> I like, you know, yeah. I, I just, it, it's just a weird feeling, you know, like, it's like I, I'm I lost. I'm sure it's like also like just this like instinctual feeling that, that because, you know, all these, some, all these things around you happen, but you can't help but take it as a personal, like, personal failure inside is like part of you yeah but that's that's heavy yeah I mean you know it's not it was just I'm just a, it's not like I had kids to feed so I mean it wasn't you know it wasn't you know people had it worse you know people that have declared bank bankruptcy have had it much worse because they have families to feed and you know but you know for for me at the time it was it was yeah pretty depressing absolutely you know especially i uh, i think like for a creative person as well um this that feeling can be you know you already feel like you're always swimming upstream as a like an independent creative person just trying to make money and and then when when something like this happens you can't help but take it as like a real a real blow Mm. Yeah, but so I th but I think you know I th so what ended up happening is um, I basically had no money, so I was really think I had to like I was you know I basically I had to leave New York. I was thinking you know I was planning on you know where am I going to move and you know moving back to your parents in Ohio, which was definitely an option, but it's not you know when you're in your thirties you don't want to move back to your parents house because you failed you know mm. so just you know as as they say as fate would have it um kiro from capital contacted me maybe within a month like like very yeah. soon after this i got a phone call from kiro and he was like you know eric do you want to you know sh are you available to shoot for capital and i was like yeah <laughs> yeah i'm available <laughs> Let me check my let calendar. Me, <laughs> let me put you on hold and get the yeah. real Eric Kvatek. Just yeah. one moment, please. Well, yeah. you gotta fake it till you make it, right? Yeah, so then, you know, but even, you know, even when I started shooting for Capital, it was still pretty rough. I mean, mm. you know, it's not like you get a regular paycheck instantly, you know, you get paid you know, a couple times a year, and then you still got to budget, you know, mm. your money. And, um, I mean, I, you know, I had to catch up on my rent. I, I probably wasn't even paying my rent at the time. So I had to like catch up just to, to keep my apartment. I had to catch up with rent. Mm. I didn't have, I, back then I still didn't have a digital camera. I only had my, you know, my film camera. And so, you know, but yeah, I mean, it kind of saved me from leaving New York and, not being a photographer um but you know i was definitely capable of being something else and i was actually you know making those plans yeah like i was researching i was researching truck driving schools <laughs> <laughs> like professional truck driving schools you know to get a 
to get the proper license. I think you'd be um, a good truck driver, but I still think you're a way better photographer. Yeah, I'm sure. Hopefully, I'm a better photographer than I am truck driver. Maybe but, uh, you could. Yeah, so then you could be the the traveling truck driving photographer. You know, they they probably see some pretty incredible stuff. Absolutely, you know? my uncle was a truck driver. He had like a bunch of stories to tell. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, back back in the olden days, you know, like truck drivers would have like multiple. You could have licenses like from different states, so like you could get, you know, from speeding, like you'd get your license taken away from driving so fast, but you then you'd have your other truck driving license, you know? Yeah, so you just right. work your way through all your licenses. And, but, um, but I, I also, I researched, um, being an EMT, like, a like in an ambulance, oh, like yeah. I was researching, I was researching how to be that, how to do that as a career. I was researching, you know, a commercial pilot school, Whoa. To be a pilot. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so. Apparently, if you. All of which took money I didn't have. Yeah. Apparently, if you are a pilot, if you do your pilot's license in Australia, there's like a high demand for, for that kind of work. Well, that was the case before the virus. I'm not sure what yeah. the situation would be now. Probably a lot lower. Um, yeah, my, yeah, my sister, like she had a housemate that was doing his, his pilot's license and he was just telling me how, like how high in demand, um, pilots were and, and, um, yeah, how, how actually short the, the, the time was to, to actually be qualified to, to be a pilot, um. Yeah, pilots see the world from a real interesting perspective yeah. too. Hey, you went into yeah, it. Sure you went in a helicopter recently. Yeah, so the other in, capital photo shoot in South Dakota, South Dakota, I got got to shoot in helicopters, or like actually in the air, with like no no doors on the wow. on the. So you're literally just looking down at you know. Wow. Yeah, that was that was pretty incredible. I'll, sorry, I'm getting a little bit thirsty and I have no liquid. I have no liquid in the middle of my interview. I might have to drink my urine or something to survive. Well, your t-shirt says Survivor. I really get Survivor. the feeling like this is the subliminal message you're trying to tell everyone. Yeah. Yeah, but like this seriously, is the most difficult. yeah, no, it is really inspiring <laughs> to like, to just like hear how, how you just, you just re have really like just gone with the flow. I think one thing that I think really like is what makes people freeze in these kind of scary situations is fear. And like, I feel like people either when you're a scared person, you either freeze or you like make action plan. And I feel like if there was a zombie apocalypse, like you would definitely be making all the action plans, which is like, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's like 
it's a I think it's a more positive way to be when you're in instead of captivated by fear yeah yeah I, I feel so like learning I, yeah you go for it can I tell you so I can I tell you my other failure story please I'm enjoying this do we have time do we yes. have time um, so the ve- the very literally the very first thing I ever did as an adult was was fail. So <laughs> it, it kind of set me up. Like it, it definitely affected my thinking for the rest of my life. Like you know how do I want to go about things? So so basically like at, when I was applying to colleges, um, I, I was really good at drawing. Like I was you know a really good artist. Let's say and. I wanted to go to art school and you know part a lot of my it's not so much that I wanted to go to college but I wanted to get out of Ohio like I mm. wanted my goal was to get out of Ohio and I had a really miserable high school experience because I didn't really have very many friends cuz mm. I was like like the stuff that I was into there was just nobody else into it like yeah. I was the only kid that listened to punk rock I was you know it, it was just this super it was a really nice suburban town but it was just kind of boring so Mm. my goal was to just get really far away from ohio where there would be girls that were cool you know and and i had this fantasy that every all the other kids would be like super you know enlightened and you know cool and you know which which ended up not being the case so so i only applied to these like really specific art private art colleges that were like really cool places I didn't really realize how much money they cost, you know, and but I sort of had this feeling like well, I'm such a good artist, I'll get a scholarship, you know, and and I had no backup plan, I had no backup school, like I didn't have like one cheap school, you know, on the list. So like, basically, I, I got accepted to all the colleges, but then I lost. I was like, oh shit, like. I don't have twenty thousand dollars, you know. Yeah. And there was this. There was one school that that sort of led me to believe that I might be getting a scholarship. But to to get it, you had to go to this awards ceremony in in Maryland. So I had my parents and I had to drive from Ohio to this awards ceremony, and it, we didn't. You know, it's a lot. Took took a fair amount of money just to drive there, mm. and the way they set up the awards ceremony is you're sitting there in the dark, and they're showing each student they're showing the winners like if you've won a scholarship they show your artwork but they did it alphabetically so if they got past your name you knew you you didn't get get anything Mm. you know so we're literally so i'm like 17 or 18 years old and i'm sitting there in the dark with my parents and they would pass up somebody's name you'd hear them start crying like literally you know in the dark you just hear sobbing you know Wow. So, they, and and the the other thing is, I was like super confident as an artist. Like I, I I, you know, I felt like you know I've got some talent, you know. And as they were showing the winners' artwork, I was like, oh shit, these people are really talented. Like these people are better than me, oh, you no. know. So, before they even got to my name, I kind of knew that I'd failed. Like I kind of knew, like I'm not getting a scholarship so you know they came up to the k's and the whatever and they, they they blew past my name without calling it and 
I wasn't even that bummed. I already kind of knew, like I already, you know, like sitting there and seeing like how talented the other students were, I kind of knew that, you know, I'm not getting this scholarship. So, so basically then I had, I couldn't afford to go to any of the colleges I applied to. I didn't want to stay in my, my town. And I, you know, I could have just gone to work or I could have just worked for a year and whatever. So it was, you know, it wasn't the worst failure ever, but I was kind of obsessed with getting out of that town. Mm. And I found some like rinky dink, like art school that would accept, you know, that would let take my money, but it was still in Ohio, but at least I was out of my town, you know? Mm. So I moved to this town and I can't afford like a really good apartment. So I rented this like shitty apartment. It was full of cockroaches, you know, like, cockroaches are just like literally I found a cockroach on my toothbrush <laughs> I've lived in a place like that too um I work I worked at a subway sandwich shop do you know what that is yes where the guy Sub lost all the weight from eating yeah, sandwiches so, so I worked at this subway sandwich shop the manager would actually make fun of me for working too hard <laughs> like she would sit there like literally would sit there and make fun of me like ridicule me for being a good worker um one of the other workers threw a knife at me like oh like yeah it was just it was just it was just like this horrible horrible my my first the point is that my first foray into the world was horrible like really like um <clears throat> i lost like i lost um i would like ration my food every day kind of like what i'm doing now um, and I, I lost like 20 pounds, like the first semester of this school from like literally not eating. So, so basically though, I had to like, I had to, you know, figure out how to fix it, mm. you know, how to fix my fuck up, you know? Yeah. So I, I went before the internet, you, you know, to research colleges, you had to go to the lot, this thing called the library. Ever... Yeah. Wow. So I went to, I went to the library and I, I got a book. And this book listed listed universities that had art departments. And I went to, it was by, by price. So I went to the bottom of the list to the cheapest school and I worked my way up the list until I found a college that was super cheap in and you know, in, a, in a place I wanted to go. And I, I ended up going to the University of New Mexico in New Mexico. Hey, that's not bad. There, yeah, no. So that nice. that was literally that was literally the best decision that I ever made in my life. I think yeah. was going moving to Albuquerque, New Mexico. That seems in like the a 80s. real cool place. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the the tuition the tuition was like a thousand dollars a year. Yeah. Wow. For the whole the whole year. Yeah. We, yeah. I didn't so, realize, I so never heard failure. this story of yours, actually. We have, like, quite a few little points, like, in common. Like, I have a similar um, college story, but mine, instead of Subway, it was Pizza Hut, my first job. Pizza, that's, yeah. Yeah, and, like, I was the only girl in the Pizza Hut, and my yeah, my boss, like the manager, he hated his job so much and he would like listen to death metal all day, like just, and then 
like my job, my first job in Pizza Hut was to grease the pans, the deep dish mm. pans. They'd be That's like good for your complexion, right? Yeah, they'd be like stacked up, piled high, and every time you'd open, it was like a lucky dip because every time you'd open, you know, get a new pan up, there may or may not be a huge family of cockroaches living Cockroach, in one. Of yeah. And cockroach yeah. pizza is really popular, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like how they get the real crunchy, the crunchy taste. Um, and also, I picked my my art school was like the cheapest art school. It was like two thousand Australian dollars per yeah. per for for half a year, so four thousand Australian dollars for a whole year, which was probably like two thousand US dollars or something like that. But like, and like, honestly, I didn't learn, I didn't learn anything in art school. Like, honestly, like I took photography, but I think like in the six, since from the sixties, um, like art became like the way you learn art at art school kind of changed. And like, it was all about like anti, like like free free the the medium and free yeah. your mind yeah. and like don't be confined by by technicality and and therefore like I learned I I didn't know what I was doing at art school because like I didn't even know like I thought I went to learn photography but I just went people would just it was more like a philosophy degree rather than like learning anything technical and if you wanted to learn something yeah. technical you'd have to teach yourself and it just it was a very confusing uh point in my life and then I ended up having all these like spiritual and like questions about my my existence on this planet but I really believe that like creativity comes from a from problem solving so when you when you study like a a specific like you know medium like whatever if it's printmaking or photography or, or, or painting like you learn all the tools of that medium not to be the same as every other painter or photographer or whatever but to problem solve and figure out the infinite ways that you can make it unique to yourself and like then this like new postmodern way of like learning art was just like so wild like but yeah I felt like yeah that was an interesting point in life did you learn anything at art school um was weird strangely there there were there there were several good instructors and I so I would take so what, what the smart thing I did is I didn't take the classes I wanted to take. I just took classes that had good instructors. I mm. didn't care what the subject matter was. So I like ended up taking a watercolor class cool. and I ended up taking like a pottery class oh, cool. because the because the instructors were good. Like yeah. so I didn't I didn't take photography so much but un, unless there was like a really good instructor that I like took that class mm. but yeah, so I actually kind of learned. I, I actually kind of learned something. That's good. Not necessarily. I didn't necessarily. So, so when I took the when I took the watercolor class, 
I, I walked into the watercolor class like punk rocked out, you know, like tattoos. I already had tattoos and I, 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 yeah, I don't remember what my hair looked like, but I mean, I looked like, you know, yeah. and everybody else in the class was like, they were mostly returning students, like in their sixties and seventies. <laughs> and the instructor actually like, dude, I think you're in the class. Like, you don't belong here. And, and I was like, no, I think I belong here. And, and he was, he, he really, he really tried to, he's like, I don't think you're going to like this class. Like, I don't think you're going to like it. Oh. And I was like, I was like, look, I was like, man, I just want to learn what you have to teach me. Like, I, I don't care what the class, like, I just want to be here. I want to be here, you know? Yeah. And, and it was really, it was a really, it was exactly what you wanted. It was just super formal, technical, technical teaching about how to mm. how to watercolor paint you know almost zen mm. you know and and but but one of the guys in the class was a pearl harbor survivor wow. he, he was in the military in the 40s he was at pearl harbor when it got bombed and you know me he was like you know me even back then he was probably 70 years old and we ended up being like total pals like we you know, we sat next to each other every day. He told me war stories. And he, you know, he had just like, his his wife was so traumatized by Pearl Harbor. She, she had a mental breakdown and like, he went home one day and she didn't know who he was. Like she, her mind had completely snapped. Mm. And, you know, he had stories about, you know, picking up machine guns and shooting them at the airplanes Whoa. and and you know he was um but then he but then he had traveled he 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 had traveled and he got he'd actually gone to Japan as an adult you know as an older person mm -hmm. and 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 you know made peace with that whole country you know yeah. um yeah so so yeah that was that was actually kind of an amazing class but but not I couldn't you know I only took it because I I knew the instructor was you know was good. a good guy yeah 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 but i wouldn't trade that class for like any other class you know nice well yeah like it's been real inspiring actually listening to all your stories like it makes you feel like in a way it's real reassuring just to know that like you know waves will always be coming but they'll get a little less scary looking each time you you stay out there and wait out um but yeah. they'll they'll the waves will come nonstop that's the reality well yeah i mean yeah <laughs> what were you going to say i was just going to say i mean something like i mean what i really love about doing the photo shoots is is the problem like a lot of what i like is the problem solving mm. like and I, th I think that, like anybody can pick up a camera and take photos of people wearing clothes. Yeah. But, but you know, taking good photos and then, but also just fixing all the little problems and, yeah. and, and improvising on the fly. I mean, that's that's part of what I get really excited about, like, like thrilled about, like on the actual shoot, like how do I fix this problem? How do I, you know, how do I, yeah. you know, improvise the fact that it's raining, you know, been raining for 12 hours you know yeah but uh yeah but that's kind of like life i mean that you know life. in in life you've got to 
figure out how to fix that problem. And, yeah, life is like a big Rubik's cube that yeah. I'll probably never get right or fix or make it each side the right color. But that's the process of life, right? Yeah. Well, thank you for your inspiring words today, Eric Kovatek. It was real, really, oh. really enjoyable. We haven't like touched on nearly most of the things we were going to touch on today, but that gives way for another episode. Yeah. If, if I haven't totally failed this time, then... <laughs> then you can make maybe. up for your failure next time. I'll just keep making up for failures. Yeah. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks for listening and see you next episode. Hopefully, Eric Kovatek will, will fail more for our own I'll enjoyment. I'll do my best. I'll, I'll do my best to fail for you. All right. Bye, everybody. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for having me.